Please open your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I'll be preaching this morning verses 22 through 31. John chapter 10 verses 22 through 31. And as you turn there, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we know that You have given to us Your Word. You've revealed ourself. You've revealed Yourself to us in Your Word. And we pray now that as we read Your Word and study Your Word and hear Your Word preached, that we might be drawn closer to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord from John chapter 10, verses 22 through 31. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in My Father's name bear witness about Me. But you do not believe because you are not among My sheep. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father, who has given them to Me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. May God bless the reading of His holy Word. Let His church say, Amen. I wonder how long you might be able to hang on to a horizontal bar suspended Holding on there with two hands, how many seconds do you think you could hold yourself up on that bar with your two hands? After church today, we have a challenge outside in the parking lot, and we'll see how, how you're able to do. 15 seconds? Maybe? 30 seconds? 60 seconds. How about 100 seconds? Over the Christmas holiday, I was at a shopping mall in Oklahoma City, and a vendor had set up a carnival game in the middle of the mall, and here was the challenge. Hold yourself from this bar for 100 seconds, and if you do, of course, you have to pay to do this, but if you do, hold on for 100 seconds, you win $100. Sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? And I stood there and watched as person after person, I mean, the task looked easy enough, the challenge looked simple enough, and I thought, you know, maybe I could hang there for a hundred seconds, for a hundred bucks. And I watched as person after person stepped up to the bar and held on, and as 
Beads of sweat began to pour down their brow. And they dropped to the floor below them, unable to complete the challenge. I did a little, did a little research into this this week. Turns out, and I know this is going to surprise all of you, this game is rigged. There's a, a piece of plastic that they put on the bar, and this piece of plastic moves and spins. So, yeah, I know, it, they tilt the scales to their advantage. Big surprise, right? So not only as you hang there, not only do you have to support your body weight, but as gravity pulls down upon you, this piece of plastic is moving. And so in order to stay there, what you have to do <coughs> is not only hold yourself, but also counterspin that bar. I'm all choked up just thinking about it. <laughs> Excuse me. That's what makes it so challenging, despite its easy appearance. I thought about that this week in study of this passage. How easy it appears to hold on to our salvation, but how challenging it actually is. There's so many forces of gravity weighing down on us that make holding on to our salvation so challenging. Think of all the tribulation that we endure in our life. Suffering and hardship. Weights of disappointment. The weight of besetting sin and temptation. The weight of culture and the increasing secularization of our culture and its imposition upon the family through education and media outlets. Holding on to our salvation appears easy, but it's actually quite challenging, isn't it? Because of all the weights of tribulation that pull down on us that make it so difficult. You might think that holding on to your salvation is easy, right? Like stepping up to the bar and hanging there for a hundred seconds. But when you begin to think about all the weights bearing down on us, we begin to realize how impossible it is for us to hold on to our own salvation. It's not the end of the sermon, by the way. This passage provides us so much hope about the promise of our perseverance. I want you to be absolutely convinced when you leave this place today that you will persevere in the Christian life. I want you to know that perseverance comes from God's grasp on you, not your grasp on God. Let me say that again. Perseverance comes from God's grasp on you, not your grasp on God. He's faithful when we aren't faithful. He is strong when we are weak. In fact, if our salvation depended upon the strength of our own grip, every single one of us would have fallen off the bar by now, wouldn't we? But we serve a God who is so kind and faithful, He grasps us and holds us, making us able to persevere in this life. 
So I want you to see this morning the promise of perseverance for you, dear Christian. Perseverance comes from God's grasp on you. It does not come from your grasp on God. Well, how does this passage teach that? How does this passage teach that perseverance comes from God's grasp on us, not from our grasp on God? First, it reveals to us the problem that all of us have to deal with, and that is, first and foremost, perseverance is not possible without the good shepherd's grasp on you. Let me say that again in a different way. If the good shepherd is not grasping you, you won't persevere in this life. I want you to see this with me in this passage. Jesus is in Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles has ended. That's where Jesus had healed a blind man and had revealed Himself as the Good Shepherd. And even though the Feast of Tabernacles has ended, the topic of Jesus being the Shepherd has not. That teaching has continued. So Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication this time. The Feast of Dedication occurred um, in the 100s B.C. And it was a feast that had been established by the Jews after Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. He had come into Jerusalem, he had taken over Jerusalem, and he had sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple to Zeus. And Judas Maccabeus led the Maccabean revolt and rededicated the temple to God. And so the Jews celebrated this feast, this feast of dedication. And so Jesus is here for this feast during this time. And Scripture also tells us here in verse 22 that it was winter time. And Jesus is there at the temple complex and He's walking in what is identified for us as the colonnade of Solomon. Do you see that there in verse 23? The colonnade of Solomon was an outdoor portico east of the temple. Now, at this time of Jesus' life and ministry, the temple that was there was not Solomon's temple. It was the temple that Herod had built. You'll remember that the Babylonians had destroyed the temple that Solomon built. So this was what is often referred to as Herod's temple. But this colonnade, this portico where Jesus is walking, was part of the original temple complex. And so they called it Solomon's colonnade. And it was a beloved area by the Jews because it was still part of the historical complex that Solomon had built back in all of Jerusalem's splendor and the glory of Jerusalem. And this is the place of the Jews' planned attack on Jesus. This is the scene, right? Feast of dedication, winter, temple complex, outdoor portico. You got the picture in your mind. And here we read in verse 24 that the Jews gather around Jesus. Some of the Jewish leaders, some of the very people that had heard Jesus preach and some of the very people that had seen Jesus do miracles. And here they gather around Jesus and they, they, asked him, they ask Him a question. Do we see it there in verse 24? Look at your Bible. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, this is not sincere, heartfelt, prayerful questioning of Jesus. This is antagonism by the Jews, like a 
a, a greasy, slimy southern attorney who is cross-examining a witness on the stand and asks, when was the last time you beat your wife? That's the kind of questioning that the Jews are, are assaulting Jesus with. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. This is getting old, Jesus. We're annoyed by you. That's the tone of the Jews here. Just tell us. Go ahead and give up the charade. If you're the Christ, speak plainly so we can make plans to kill you. And if not, tell us plainly so we can go on with our lives. That's the motive behind the questioning here. Are you the Christ? Get on with it. Spit it out already, Jesus. How does Jesus respond to them? Look at verse 25. Jesus sees right through to their motives, doesn't He? What's He tell them? I told you and you don't believe. Jesus had been preaching and teaching. They had heard Jesus preaching and teaching and they did not believe. Furthermore, Jesus goes on to say, the works that I do in My Father's name bear witness about Me. Let me just remind you that in the Gospel of John, Jesus' works and miracles are referred to as what? Signs. They're evidence. Jesus is on trial, so to speak, here. John is writing so that people will know that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the miracles, the works of Jesus, are signs that are evidence to the whole world that Jesus really is who He says He is. Handpicked for us by the Apostle John. And so Jesus says here, number one, you have my teaching, they speak plainly, and you have seen my works, and they are adequate evidence to answer the question. I've already told you in my teaching, and I've already shown you in my works. So clear and plain is the evidence that even a blind man could see it. And here are these Jews... And they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus tells them why. Look at your Bible there in verse 26. Jesus tells them why they don't believe. It's not for a lack of teaching and it's not for a lack of evidence. But it's for this reason right here. Look at verse 26. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. There's the reason why they don't believe. They don't believe that Jesus is the Christ because they have not been grasped by the shepherd. They are not part of the shepherd's fold. They don't number among those who belong to the shepherd. They are not Jesus' sheep. And so they have no faith in Jesus being the Christ and therefore have no promise of perseverance. Now, you were to ask a person outside of the church, normal American, if you were to ask them, what's going to happen to you when you die? Do you believe that when you die, you're going to go to heaven or hell? How will most people respond to that? Well, I'm going to go to heaven. I love all the videos from Ray Comfort. If you ever watch any of these videos, they're amazing. Ray Comfort goes out onto busy street corners and college campuses, and he'll ask people this question. Where do you, what's going to happen to you when you die? Do you think you'll go to heaven or hell? Everyone will say, oh, I go to heaven. 
And then he'll probe the answer a little bit. Well, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? And how do you think people respond? Well, there's usually one of two responses. Number one, people will often say, I'm a, you know, good person. I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. Or their other response is, I'm going to go to heaven because God is love. God is love. I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person, and I'm going to go to heaven because God is love. And what Ray Comfort will do, and it's ingenious, he'll begin to probe that even a little more. He'll begin to press in on that. Well, you think you're a good person. Well, let me ask you a few questions. Sure. Well, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, I've, I've told a lie. Have you ever lusted? Well, sure, I've, I've lusted before. Have you ever had hatred in your heart for someone? Sure, I've had hatred in my heart for someone. So what you're telling me is you're not such a good person. You're a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. And if you were to stand before God and judge you with His perfect law, what would He conclude about you? And they'll stand there and get real quiet. And then He'll press the matter a little bit more. Would God be a just... God, a holy God, would God be a loving judge if He let a murderer go free? Would we consider a judge, a good judge in our land if that judge let murderers go free? No, we would consider Him a bad judge, a poor judge. He would need to issue sentence and punish that person for their crimes. How much more so the God of the universe? Does He not have a responsibility to issue His judgment and carry out His just and righteous judgment on those who are sinners. The Jews here, if you had asked them, are you going to heaven, would have presumed absolutely want. Yes, we're going to heaven. Why? We're sons of Abraham. We're members in the covenant. We're, we're good people. And God has, God has chosen us. Jesus doesn't allow them to get away with that, does He? He says, you don't believe because you're not My sheep. And because you're not My sheep, you have no security in your salvation. I thought about this this week. If Jesus has to make us His sheep in order for us to believe and have faith and have the promise of perseverance, is God to blame then if I don't obey? and persevere. If God's the one who has to choose me and save me, and if I wasn't chosen and saved, then God's to blame for that, right? God would be unjust to punish me for that. I wonder about these Jews. Would these Jews be able to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and stand before God and say, you rejected my son as the Messiah. And the Jews look back at God and say, we had no idea that he was the Messiah. He gave us no teaching and no signs that he was the Messiah. No. They were absolutely guilty for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Here's what Scripture teaches. That our rejection of God, our rejection of Jesus, we do willingly we sin 
absolutely willingly. We desire our sin and we object to God and God's rule and reign over our lives. And we object to Christ being the Messiah. Why? Because we have a sin nature and we freely follow the nature that we have. Our sin nature. God's not responsible for our sin. God didn't make us sin. We freely chose our sin. That's what makes grace such a wonderful and beautiful thing, doesn't it? If God were to leave us to ourselves, we would never come to Him. If you and I are going to have the hope of perseverance and the confidence of perseverance, we have to absolutely know that we are in the grasp of the Good Shepherd. We have to be one of His sheep. And if you are not one of His sheep, you have no confidence in perseverance. There's no hope. God's not obligated to open heaven and welcome you into heaven one day if you're not one of His sheep. You say, well, pastor, this sermon is really bleak. What, what is the hope then? Well, this is where the good news comes into play. Perseverance isn't possible without the Good Shepherd's grasp, but you should know that if you're hearing the Good Shepherd, then you know you're in His grasp. If you're hearing the Good Shepherd, you know that you are in the grasp of the Good Shepherd. Look at what Jesus tells these Jews in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. So if you're hearing the voice of Jesus, whose grasp are you in? Whose sheep are you? Well, you're Jesus' sheep. That's whose you are. That's who you belong to. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, follow Jesus' instruction here. The sheep hear the voice, and Jesus is the one who knows them. The sheep follow Jesus, and Jesus is the one giving them eternal life. The sheep never perish because Jesus is the one who is grasping them in his hands. You see, the actions of the sheep are the results of the gifts from the shepherd. Let me say that again. The actions of the sheep, the following of Jesus, the hearing of Jesus, and the never perishing of these sheep, this is a result of the gift that the sheep have received. Because Jesus is grasping his sheep and knows his sheep, his sheep can have absolute certainty that they will persevere in this life. Absolute certainty that their salvation is secure. So if you're hearing the Good Shepherd, then you know you're in the grasp of the Good Shepherd because the Good Shepherd doesn't speak to those who aren't His sheep. When I was a kid, I've told many of you this already, but when I was a kid... I really struggled with the assurance of salvation. God was so kind and gracious to save me at a young age. I remember um, walking the aisle. grew up in the Pentecostal church. I walked the aisle and came down to the altar and said the sinner's prayer, like many of you did. And early on in my life, there was 
God's gracious and kind fruit there, that this was a true, genuine work of His Spirit in my heart. Remember reading the Bible when I was a young boy, loving the church and attending church and participating in worship. I remember having a desire to share my faith even to those who teased me because I was a Christian. I loved the Lord and desired to serve Him. And it was God's gracious and kind fruit. And yet, I still struggled with the assurance of my salvation. Here's the way that I thought. I, I thought that God's grace was there to forgive me for all my past sins and all my present sins only if I asked for His forgiveness. And so I would lie in bed every night fearful that if I died in my sleep or if the rapture happened. Again, I grew up Pentecostalism. If I died in my sleep or the rapture happened, I'm left behind. And so I would lay there in my bed as a little boy and I would think about all the horrible things that I had said and done that day and start confessing them to God. Teasing my sister, having a bad attitude, not praying enough, not reading my Bible enough, fearful that my salvation was not secure in God's hands. How do you know if you're hearing Jesus? Is there fruit in your life? Is there a desire in your heart to serve the Lord? Is there a desire in your heart to worship the Lord, to read His Word, to talk to Him? To please Him. and None of us do that perfectly, do we? But do you have any desire at all? If you do, you know that desire was placed there in your heart from a God who loves you and is gracious and kind to you. You may struggle with the assurance of your salvation. You may struggle at times in your life like, like I have. Not just as a boy, but even as an adult, times in my life where I thought, you know, I, I really am struggling to know if I'm saved. I remember the, the last time, use the air quotes, the last time I got saved. I was a student in Bible college. I had gone off to answer the call to ministry and was preparing for the ministry and I was sitting in a church service and and. I was just so worried that I wasn't a true, genuine Christian. I, I said the sinner's prayer all over again. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've doubted your salvation because you've questioned the genuineness of your profession of faith. Maybe you've doubted your salvation because of suffering that you've been through in your life. Maybe you've doubted your salvation because of Poor teaching that you've received in a church growing up that your salvation isn't secure, that it depends on you, and that Christians backslide away from the faith. Maybe you've doubted your salvation because of a besetting sin that you're struggling with right now. Here's what I want you to know from this passage, dear Christian. Perseverance comes from God's grasp on you. It does not come from your grasp on God. If you're in Christ, you can have the confidence and the assurance of knowing that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Even when you sin is not the discipline of the Father. Evidence 
in your life and mine of His love for us. Even the prodigal son was a son while he was a prodigal, wasn't he? And the Lord brought him back into the family. Isn't the same thing true for us as well? Don't we learn from Scripture that that's how the Lord cares for us? Isn't He the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go and find the one who's lost? Isn't He the, the loving Father in the story and the parable of the prodigal son who is there waiting and, and welcoming that prodigal child when He comes back into the family? Isn't that true of the Father? Doesn't the epistle of the Hebrews teach us that the discipline of the Lord is evidence of His love for us? Don't ever question your salvation if you're in Christ. Even the Lord's discipline is His kindness to let you know that He cares for you, that He loves you, and He is going to enable you, make you willing and able to persevere in this life. He sends the hound dogs of heaven to come and find His lost sheep. He's real good at it, too. So you might as well bend the knee to King Jesus when He finds you rather than have Him break your leg and bring you home. He can do it! Some of you have the testimony of that. And you know the Lord's kindness and faithfulness to us in that regard. Perseverance isn't possible without the Good Shepherd's grasp, but if you're here in the Good Shepherd, then you know you're in His grasp. What can you be confident of then if you're in the Good Shepherd's grasp? Well, the conclusion is pretty obvious, isn't it? You know that if you're in the Good Shepherd's grasp, then you can be confident you'll persevere. If He's holding you, if you are in His grasp, you will persevere. Jesus has already said that. We've already seen that here in verse 28, haven't we? Jesus says, He's holding His sheep and no one will snatch them out of His hand. His grip is strong. Jesus makes the case even more here in verse 29. My Father has given them to Me. Oh, wait a minute. What? Oh yeah. Jesus says, those sheep, they're not just My sheep. God the Father gave those sheep to Me. He owns everything. He's the Lord and Creator of all the universe. And those sheep who are My sheep were given to Me by My Heavenly Father. And I am absolutely confident in who My sheep are, is what Jesus is saying. You know what Jesus says? He knows His sheep. He calls them by name. How is He able to do that? Because He knows all the sheep that the Father has given to Him. He knows them. They've been given to Him. By the Father. And, well, who's the Father? Well, the Father, look at verse 29, is greater than all. He's the Creator of all the universe. He's the, the Lord of heaven and earth. He rules and reigns all things by the, the Word of His power. He's the Creator of all the universe. He's the Creator of His church. He's the Creator of Jesus' sheep. And He gives them to the Son. What does Jesus say? He doubles down on this. Look at verse 29. No one is able to snatch them, not just out of Jesus' hand, but 
Who is holding as well? Who's holding tightly? The Father is too. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, we're going to read here in the Gospel of John that they are going to kill the shepherd. The Jews are going to kill the good shepherd. They're going to put him to death. And the assumption of the enemy will be that if they can kill the shepherd, the sheep are going to be scattered. And what Jesus is saying here is, even if you kill the shepherd, the sheep are secure in the Father's hand. Now, wonderful here. What the enemy doesn't know is that killing the shepherd is actually what brings life to the sheep. It's the great wisdom of God. Jesus says, perhaps the most scandalous words in all the Gospel of John, right here in verse 30. This is verse 30 right here, John 10.30, is the most, probably the most controversial thing that Jesus will ever say to the Jews. Look at verse 30. I and the Father are one. This mission and work of Jesus is an absolute perfect unity with the will of God the Father. How is Jesus able to have absolute perfect unity with God the Father? Because He and the Father are one. They're the same in substance. The, the, you can't miss the well, not Trinitarian theology yet. Jesus doesn't talk about the Spirit, but we would certainly look to this passage as that, wouldn't we? Jesus preserves the identity of the persons, the distinctions of the persons. God the Father and God the Son. And notice Jesus doesn't say, I'm like the Father here. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I was the Father, and now I have come as the Son. Last well, modalism, right? That Jesus, that God changes his hats and reveals himself in the three different persons of the Trinity. Jesus doesn't do that. He preserves the identity of each person of the Trinity here. Jesus is distinct, he's his own person, and so is the Father, and yet the great mystery is they are one. The same in substance, equal in glory and power. Because of this, Jesus is absolutely confident in the perseverance of the sheep. And this is the reason that we see in verse 31, the Jews are so angry about this. They understand what he's saying. They understand he's making himself to be equal with God. And so they pick up stones to stone him. I want you to think about the shepherd's grasp here. For a moment. I want you to think about God's grasp of you, dear Christian. I want you to think about a child crossing the street. A busy, dangerous street. Have you ever helped a child get across the street before? Most of you have. And what do you and that child do almost instinctively? You reach down and you hold each other's hands. And if the child doesn't reach up for your hands, you probably do what I do with my kids. Hey! Hold dad's hand. You know, as the adult, that if you don't hold the child's hand, the child is likely to 
enter into the crosswalk while traffic is still going back and forth. You know that the child is liable to become distracted as they cross the street and deviate from the path instead of crossing the street as they ought. You know that the child is likely to trip and fall on their way across the street and get hurt. The child has some sort of awareness too that the street is dangerous. And so the child knows he or she needs to be holding on to a grown-up's hand. He or she knows he needs to be holding on to mommy or daddy's hand. And so the child offers their hand to the parent or to the adult who's helping them. But if you've ever helped a child cross the street, you know that their safety across the street is not dependent upon their grip on your hand. A child's grip is actually quite weak. And fickle, too. They'll just pull away and run from you. The safety of the child crossing the street is dependent upon the grip of the parent on the child's hand. You as the adult, the parent, the aunt, the uncle, the grandparent, you're holding that child's hand, ensuring their safety across the street. And even if they let go of your hand, you are not letting go of their hand. How much more so our Heavenly Father as we go through this life, He's holding our hand, isn't He? And there may be times when we try to let go of the Father's hands or we may trip and, and begin to fall or may deviate from the path or run out into oncoming traffic, danger, and the Father is there holding our hand, never letting go of us. Are you certain of God's grasp on you this morning? You might say, you know what? No, Pastor, I'm not really certain of God's grasp on me. I want you to consider what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, that perseverance does not depend on our own free will. John MacArthur says it this way, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Think about that. If you could lose your salvation, you would. But you can't. Why? Because it does not depend on your own free will. He's holding your hand. He's holding you. Perseverance is trustworthy because of the immutability of God's decree. You say, well, what does that mean? Has God ever told a lie? Has God ever changed His mind? Never. And if He has declared you adopted and justified, you can take it to the bank. He doesn't unadopt His children. He doesn't declare them guilty after He's already declared them innocent in Christ. He's decreed your salvation and He's never wrong about you. God doesn't change His mind. He doesn't change His love. Furthermore, has not Christ sacrificed Himself for your sins? And do we think so low of Christ's atonement that the atonement only makes salvation possible but not accomplished? Doesn't Scripture teach us quite otherwise? That the work of Jesus on the cross accomplishes our salvation, not just making it possible. We would make Christ 
a liar. It would make God the Father a liar if we could lose our salvation. Has He not given us His Holy Spirit who abides with us and walks with us, making us willing and able to persevere in this life? I want you to be absolutely convinced this morning perseverance does not depend on your grasp on God. It depends on God's grasp of you. How long do you think you could hold on to God? Through temptation and sin and hardship, disappointment and failure? We shouldn't think so highly of ourselves. Our grip isn't that strong. The weight of tribulation and hardship pulls down on us so strongly that if salvation were dependent upon our grip on God, we'd lose our grip every time. We have no certainty. But we're confident because we have a Savior who has gone to the cross. He held on to the bar for us. And His sacrifice is accounted to our credit. You and I were just witnesses of the cross. We would have been completely unable to bear the hells of pain and torment on the cross. But Jesus went to the cross scorning its shame and perfectly accomplished our redemption. And our salvation is absolutely secure in Him. Let's pray.